have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 11 again. I'll read through verse 13. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Father, would You give us wisdom from Your Word? Would You help us know how to fight the enemy? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The question we want to consider once again this morning is this. Do you know the schemes of the evil one in your own life? Do you see them? Satan comes in camouflage. The enemy comes as an angel of light. He often presents himself as good. He often makes us feel justified and righteous? Do you see His schemes in your life? That's the question. Do you know where to unleash the spiritual weapons God has given you? You know the Scripture? That's great. Those are like weapons. Do you know where to shoot the weapons? Do you know how to attack the enemy in your own life? What good is 10,000 missiles if you don't know where to shoot them? Do you see satanic attack in your life? If you don't, then I'm afraid that you've been blinded. Can you honestly say that you're acting demonic sometimes. That your actions are being influenced by the devil. If you can't say that, you are being deceived. For you have an enemy that is great. And Christian, when you're given the new birth, when you're born again, the armor of God doesn't fly onto your body. You are given new life. You are given new eyes. You are given the Spirit of God. You are given the church. You are given spiritual gifts. All that is true. But this text says to put on the armor of God. He doesn't tell Christians the armor is already on. He says to put it on. He doesn't say, you already are acting in the strength of His might, but He tells you to rely on His strength and not your own strength. And the reason why He tells us to put on the armor of God is because of who our enemy is. God doesn't have any confidence in your or my ability to defeat the devil in our own strength, in our own wisdom. None. In the words of R.C. Sproul, speaking of Peter, when he had confidence that he wasn't going to deny Christ, he was going to die for Christ, R.C. said, Peter was duck soup for the devil. 
easy. It's easy to sift Peter like wheat. But Christ prayed for Peter. And so Peter was restored. We can't do it in our own strength. This Bible does not just tell you what to do. This Bible also acts as a diagnostic. This Bible acts like a mirror to help you see the enemy's schemes in your own life, to help you see the lies of your own heart that deceive you and keep you from growing in the grace of Christ. It's good to know what it says, but do you know who you are? Have you looked into the light of God's Word? And has God's Word exposed the ways the enemy gets a hold on us? The charge of this message is this. Know that Satan is the God of this world and the father of death. It's the same as last week. Same charge. Last week we looked at how he manipulates through the system of the world. He's the God of this world. He's the spirit that is at work within the sons of disobedience. This is his world system. There's a reason why what's normal in the world seems diametrically opposite as to what God says. It's because it's His system. And so one of the ways He manipulates us is through the world. Through the world, world's ideologies, which are in rebellion to Christ. That's what we looked at last week. And then we looked at how fundamentally the devil is a murderer. He wants to bring death in your life. And what is death? Death is separation. Physical death is the separation of your spirit from your body. Spiritual death is separation from your soul from God. He wants to work separation in your life. Last week we looked at how He works separation in our lives from us to God. This week we're going to look at how He works separation in our lives towards our neighbor. You see, we're to love God and we're to love our neighbor. That's fulfilling the whole law, right? Well, the schemes of the devil... The goals of the scheme of the devil and his demons are to bring separation in your relationship with God, in your relationship with one another. We're going to spend basically the entirety of our time on point B in our notes. Last week we did A. He wants to separate you from your neighbor. And then next week we'll do C and D. So I'm going to give you a list of 12 ways. This obviously isn't a comprehensive list. But 12 ways that we know Satan seeks to bring division between mankind from each other. Alright? Now as we look at these 12 points... We need to remember where we've been. We need to remember the gospel. When a Christian gets new life in Christ, when they become born again, they have a new life, but they have a new people. Jew and Gentile are now reconciled to one another as they're both reconciled to God. That's the text we read together. In Ephesians 4.1, here's how Paul says it, just to jog our memory. I therefore, a prisoner 
for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the goal of your life, Christian. Unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what's Satan's scheme going to be? To bring division. Someone might say, well, if a person's born again and you can't lose your salvation, why doesn't Satan just give up on them? Even if he can't steal you back and make you one of his own children, once you're born again, he can still use you to bring division within the body. You realize that? You can still work for him. This is why we ought to be on guard. When we're deceived, we're not the only one that is hurt. So as we consider our text, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces evil in heavenly places. The first thing he shows us is this. He shows us that our divisions are not ultimately against each other. That's not the fundamental thing that's going on. Whenever two people are in conflict with each other, and you ask them, what's the problem? They're inevitably going to point at each other. But this text says that's not the fundamental thing that's going on where there's relational conflict. I'm here to tell you, Christians, that the rubber meets the road of your heart. If you want to know how's your heart, the place you'll see it is in your relationships. It's in your relationships. It's where the rubber meets the road. All right, so the first satanic lie that we're going to look at is this. It's a question. What is love? We all know we're supposed to love each other. But what is love, right? Kind of like how Pilate said to Jesus. Jesus says, the, the purpose for which I've come into this world is to bear witness to the truth. What is truth? Right? What is truth? So, what is love? John 13, 34 and 35 says this. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. All people, unbelievers will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So one of Satan's main schemes is this. Get you to think you're loving one another when you're actually not because if we're to be Christ to the world, represent Christ to the world, if he can twist love, he strikes at the fundamental thing Christ has called us to. I have a rather lengthy quote because I think it's, I can't say it any better, uh, by John MacArthur in this regard. Here's what he says. As important as right doctrine and right living are, all right, get that in your mind, right doctrine and right living. There are no substitutes for love and in fact become cold and sterile apart from love. So morality and right doctrine 
becomes sterile and cold apart from love. Lovelessness not only grieves the Lord, but gives Satan a foothold in a believer's life. When a believer or a body of believers loses its deep sense of love for the Lord, that believer or the church is on the brink of spiritual disaster. He goes on. Spiritual defection usually begins simply with forgetting the joy of the first experiences after salvation, including the thrill of Bible study, prayer, worship, and the sense of belonging to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, Christ said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember how you were before your love became cold, he was saying. Second, spiritual defection always involves sin. And the Lord next told them to repent. Sinning believers, which includes lovelessness, must be cleansed by the Lord before they are useful to Him again. The third spiritual defection always involves a decrease in the quality, if not the quantity, of Christian service. And the Lord therefore told the Ephesians, do the deeds you did at first. And here's His final paragraph. Orthodox, that means sound in doctrine. Orthodox but loveless activities are done in the flesh. And though they appear to be godly, they are not. The only true spiritual service is loving service. The Lord was saying in effect, get back to the fire, to the source of your power and help, Get back to the Word and to prayer and to close Christian fellowship. Get back to praising the Lord. But the church at Ephesus did not do that. And as he had warned, the Lord removed their lampstand. That church, though orthodox, evangelical, and active in good works, soon went out of existence. So you have to have a category for Satan working powerfully in a church that is serious about the Bible and serious about our morality, but is lacking love for the Lord Jesus and therefore love for one another. One of the main attacks of a church like ours is to convince us that good morals and right doctrine equals love. But it's simply not true. Which brings us to the second lie. Satan comes and says, you are impressive. You are good. You are good. See, do you see how much better your righteousness is compared to them? Here's where we see this Pharisee-like uh, sinfulness and pride. You know, what did the Pharisees have? They had outward morality, and they had strict theology. Did they not? That's what they had. And what did it get them? It got them status. So imagine a Pharisee. Their strict theology and their outward morality got them status. People would bow to them. Oh, you are so godly. Oh, you are so righteous. Teacher, teacher. And they loved it. They gained status. They gained respect. They gained power. They gained money as they deceived widows. Where pride reigns, there will always be division. What you don't see amongst the Pharisees, we don't have any evidence of love or unity or 
the fruitfulness in relationships. Outward morality, yes. Fruitfulness in relationships, no. There is something to be gained with self-righteousness. Status, respect, power, money. But what they lacked is the most important thing, which is love. And so Satan attacks by camouflaging, you're good. Look at your morality. Look at how you live compared to others. Look at your theology. Your church isn't messed up. The church I go to isn't messed up like that church over there. Oh, that feels good. Right? We get to be the good ones and have the good status. How's your relationships? See, that's rubber meets the road. That's where the Bible holds up the mirror and looks, helps us see inside. So there's three texts, and, I, and just to not make you worried, the first five of these we're going to spend more time on and then tick through them faster. So the first five I, I consider more fundamental, all right? So in this regard to pride or self-righteousness, there's three texts that they all have a similar pattern to them. They all have relationships being talked about, then pride being talked about, and then the devil's schemes being talked about, all right? I just want to point them out to you. We can't spend a lot of time here. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9. I'll just read it quickly. See if you can hear these. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. All right? That's the opposite of pride. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you, casting your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Be humble towards one another. Be humble towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't do things in your own strength. Cast your cares upon Him. This is what humility looks like. Watch out for the devil. As you're not humble towards one another, he's right there to devour you, to take you out, to breed division where Christ wants to bring unity. All right? And then the next text, James 4, 1 through 12 which essentially has this aspect to it. Give me what I want or I'll attack you. See? This is what pride does. Give me what I want or I'll come after you. James 4.1 What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, what if God's Word answers that question for us? What if God's Word tells us the answer? This is what no secular psychologist knows. They can try to help you with conflict in your relationships, but what causes quarrels and fights among you? The Bible tells us. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You, you see that? You don't get what you want, so you attack. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. <laughs> See, you're doing this all in your own scheming. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. See, we don't ask for more of God. We ask for more of God's stuff from God. And God would hate us if He just gave us all that, right? And then He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What he means is this. You're acting just like the sons of disobedience. This present darkness, 
the prince of the power of the air. You're acting as though you're his children. Or do you suppose that is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Meaning God loves you. The spirit that is made to dwell in you is your soul. He's jealous over your soul. He doesn't want to let you go to the enemy. And so he says, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Thank God for that. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You see in the same theme? Relationships, pride, the devil. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then he's back to relationships. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother judges his brother. Speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, that's the second text that has this same pattern to it. The third one is James 3.13. The context to this one is James is helping his recipients discern between two people that stand up with the Word of God in their mouth. The devil often comes with the Word of God in his mouth, does he not? How are you going to discern between who's from above And who is from below? Here's what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. All right? Two people standing up. One may not be in meekness and the other one may be. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So he imagines that some of his recipients might be standing up with the Word of God in their mouth and bitterness and selfishness and selfish ambition in their hearts. That's a real category that James thinks Christians might struggle with. I have the Word of God, but I have selfish ambition. I have ulterior motives. And then he says this about it. He says, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Have you ever had selfish ambition? and bitterness against brothers or sisters in Christ. Call it what the Bible calls it. Call it demonic. Because then when you see it's demonic, you can attack it. You can fight with spiritual weapons. But if you justify it, he's camouflaged and he has you defeated. And then he says, verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. 
And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to know what this text means? This text means that sometimes my actions prove that I am being more influenced by the devil than I am by the Spirit of God. That's what it means. And if you don't think you can say the same thing, you're blind and you're in a dangerous place. Call it what it is. Let the Word of God act like a mirror. You need not be afraid to call it what it is, for you have a great Savior that came to save great sinners. Do you realize that? You don't have to defend yourself. You can look into the mirror. You can be undone. You can be broken when He came for sinners. All right, number three. Satan comes and says, sacrifice, sacrifice, but show no mercy. This is obviously the opposite of what Jesus said, right? Matthew 9.10, Jesus reclined at the table in his house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, to, to those who are well, I have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus Christ said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You want to know a lot of times how divisions start among us? This is what I gave up for Christ. You know? I don't have a TV. TVs are evil. I sacrificed it to the Lord. He's Lord of my life. What if you're talking to someone that has a TV? Oh, I don't do that. That's too worldly. I sacrificed that to the Lord. We know anyone like that in the Bible? This is the discussion. This is the talk all the time. Jesus said to the Pharisees, He says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. Sacrifice, once again, gains recognition, status, pride. Mercy decides to make a payment. Jesus says, don't go gain self-righteous status among the people. If you've been wronged, make the payment. Show them mercy. Give. Don't always be looking to gain. All right, number four. Speak, speaking the truth is loving no matter what. This is a lie. The Christians often believe speaking the truth is loving no matter what. Ephesians 4.15 tells us, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when Christians speak the truth, the recipients of that should say, that's building me up in love. Just saying the truth actually isn't necessarily loving. John MacArthur here says this, speaking the truth in love seems deceptively easy, but it's extremely difficult. It is possible only for the believer who is thoroughly equipped in sound doctrine and spiritual maturity 
for the immature believer, right doctrine can be no more than cold orthodoxy and love can be no more than sentimentality. Only the mature man, the man who is growing up to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ is consistent in having sufficient wisdom to understand God's truth and effectively present it to others. And only he has the continual humility and grace to present it in love and in power. The combination of truth and love counteracts two great threats to powerful ministry, the lack of truth and the lack of compassion. So here's what he's saying. You might think it's easy to speak the truth in love. MacArthur says only the most mature believer, only the most humble believer can actually execute speaking the truth in a way that builds others up. It's not easy. It's not easy. Think of the Apostle Paul. He said things like this to the, probably one of the most difficult churches of his day. 2 Corinthians 12.15 I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Did he speak to the Corinthians about hard things? Yes. Did he speak it to them in humility and in tears and willingness to be spent for their souls? Yes. First Thessalonians 2.7, listen to what Paul says about how he handled them. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children and having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you became very dear to us. He said, I came to you like a nursing mother. Yes, I gave you the gospel, but I also gave you my life. You see that? One of the lies is, if I speak the truth, I have to be doing the Lord's work. It's not true. It's not true. One more quote I'll give you uh, from MacArthur. What we say should be gracious, that it may give grace to those who hear. As Paul has already said, the mature Christian not only speaks the truth, but speaks in love. He writes, raw truth is seldom appropriate and is often destructive. We have been saved in grace and we are kept in grace. Therefore, we are to live and speak in grace. Just as grace supremely characterizes God, it should also characterize his children. Did you get that? Seldom is it right to speak raw truth. He says you need to realize, Christian, you're never outside of the grace of God. And if you live your whole life in the grace of God, then all your words should come out in light of the grace of God. Full of mercy and love and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering. All right, fifth. Forget the cross for a moment. I don't think they deserve your forgiveness. Basically the lie of, I don't think you ought to give forgiveness. Yeah, I know they're going to tell you to look at the cross, but this is an exceptional circumstance. I don't think you should give forgiveness here. When a person falls to this scheme, they forget who they are. They forget who they are. That's why in Ephesians 5.1 he says, therefore be imitators of God. Now get this, as beloved children. So be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Do you realize that? Paul says, remember who you are, your beloved children, so walk in love. He gave Himself up for you and you were rebellious sinner, deserved nothing. So you walk in love with one another. Remember who you are. You've been shown forgiveness. You've been shown 
grace. Forgive. But that's much harder than you think. You think that would be simple. You think this is Christianity 101. But the reason why it is so difficult to get rid of the bitterness towards one another is because we're actually not fighting against one another. We're fighting a spiritual enemy that seeks to separate and divide. Listen to Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, so that's who we are, chosen, holy and beloved. In light of who you are, he says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. See, it assumes that we're going to wrong each other. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. For the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. It's, it's not a thing you ought to do. According to Colossians, it's the thing we must do. We must forgive one another. Second Corinthians two six. You have a man who is in the church that was sleeping with his mother in law. And the church was negligent and they were just they were just letting it happen. They were sitting back passively, letting it happen. And Paul says in First Corinthians one five, How can you be so arrogant? How can you be so prideful? Put this man out of the church. I've already judged him. Christ has judged him. Put him out of the church so that his flesh might be destroyed and he might turn. Well then, we see in 2 Corinthians that this man repented. But now... The devil has this church in another ditch. Before they were too mild and unwilling to stand for truth, now they stood up, they kicked him out of the church, but now he's repentant and they don't want to let him back in. They're all the way in the other ditch, and here's what he says. He says, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, which is what the devil wants. He wants a repentant sinner remaining with no hope. Right? And so here's what Paul says. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Don't just accept him back. Reaffirm your love to him. Forgive him. Love Him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of His designs. Here's what he's saying. You have to forgive him or you're going to fall into Satan's trap for his schemes, for his designs. We live in a fallen world with broken relationships. We do. You have people in your mind right now that are hard to forgive, that are hard to seek reconciliation with. but are you going to remember who you are? Are you going to let the enemy come in and win? Let's not do it. Let's put on the armor of God. Let's have the conversations with one another in love. Let's lean into one another in love and seek reconciliation, seek repentance. 
That's why in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, those two lines are connected. You've been forgiven, and you've forgiven your debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. I knew the first five were going to take a long time. Here's what I'll say to that text, and then I think we got to close here. He's talking about two different types of forgiveness. There's forensic forgiveness, meaning the moment you trust Christ, the moment you're born again, every sin you ever have committed and ever will commit was paid for by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross. And it's applied to you the moment you trust Christ. Before you trusted Christ, the wrath of God remained on you. But the moment you trusted Christ, all the payment for all your sins is applied to your account judicially. It's forensic forgiveness. So why does the New Testament ask us to confess our sins to God then? Because a text like this is talking about relational forgiveness. Let me illustrate it this way. If a child wakes up in the morning and has breakfast with his father, and the father says, I hope you have a good day at school today. I hope you have a good day at work today. And the kid says, you know what, Dad? Bleep you. Curses at his dad. The most offensive thing you can imagine, right in the father's face. That child doesn't fail to be the child of that father when he does that. But if that child comes to supper and says, hey dad, how's your day? Uh-uh. It's not going to go like that, is it? What needs to happen? The child needs to say, dad, what I said this morning was wrong. It was sinful. Will you forgive me? Yes, son. I'll forgive you. Okay, dad, how was your day? You see, our sin separates us from God relationally until it's confessed. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, you will be far from God relationally. You don't fail to be His child, but you do fail to have close fellowship with Him. And what Jesus is saying is this, if you don't forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you dare think you have a close relationship with Me. Because all these areas that separate us from each other separate us from God until there's repentance and faith. All right, so we'll leave it there. But let me end with this. If we're to succeed in this, every one of us has to admit this is terribly, impossibly hard apart from the supernatural grace of God because we really, really, really do sin against one another. And we really do hurt each other. And we really do wrong each other. And you cannot forgive in and of your flesh. You can't do it. And so you need endurance from God. And you need encouragement to continue on. So let me end by leaving you with Romans 15, 5-7. I love how the end of this letter how Paul says this towards the end of this letter. He says, may the God of endurance, we, this is what we need, right? May the God of endurance and encouragement 
grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Forgiveness is hard. And the reason why it's hard is because it requires payment. It's costly. If you were wronged and you forgive, that means you're letting go of your manipulative power to punish. You're letting go of your right to victimhood. It's hard to do that. What did it take for Christ to forgive you? It was costly. It cost His own blood. It cost His life. So make the payment with one another. Let each other go. Quit making them pay. And let's not be deceived by the schemes of the evil one. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is so rich. Your whole New Testament basically tells us about Christ and what He's done on our behalf to forgive us of our sins. And then Paul's letters, Father, over and over and over again, they tell us who we are and then how to live in unity with one another. Lord, will You help us in this most difficult area? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's fitting that we share in the Lord's Supper together this morning because the ordinance of, ordinances the Lord Jesus Christ gives us all have to do with our union with Him and our union with one another. Uh, the Lord's Supper is for believers who are holding to the faith with a clear conscience. A true believer is someone that knows they're not good, knows they need the grace of Jesus Christ, and has desperately clinged to the Savior as their only hope. And the person that has done that, the Scripture calls them to be baptized as believers. And the, Christ, er, and the Scripture calls those who are baptized to live in a covenant fellowship with one another in a local church. And so if that's you, we invite you to share in the Lord's Supper.